0: i and my savior am happy and blessed watching and waiting looking above filled with his goodness lost in his love this is my story this is my song Praising my Savior all the day long. This is my story, this is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. Amen. Good singing. Let's be seated. Join me, if you would, back in James chapter 4. Now, those of you who've been here for a while, you know it's been uh, uh, quite some time since we were in the book of James. I was actually surprised at the number of months it's been. I didn't mean to take that long of hiatus. We were marching through the book fairly consistently, and uh, Lord willing, we are going to continue to do so. Um, We hit the pause button right at the end of chapter 3. So with the Lord's help, we will press through with the rest of this letter and the weeks to follow. Now, I did have the whole section read, all 12 of those those verses. We're not going to get through all 12. We'll get through about half of them for the sake of time. I think it will be helpful to review just a little bit uh, what was going on in this letter. Because, again, I mean, we break it down into chapter and verse divisions. That helps us for... It's awful hard. If, if, you, if I had to say, well, turn to the epistle of James, fourth paragraph, third sentence in, just before the second semicolon, uh, you would have a hard time finding that. So chapter and verse divisions uh, do help as far as locating passages, but sometimes they can get in the way of us remembering to look at these as actual letters. That's what an epistle is. It was a personal letter. It was uh, penned through a man by the Holy Spirit of God as part of the Holy Scriptures, But it was done so in letter form. So we do want to backtrack at least a little bit uh, to bring us back up to speed before we go forward. Once again, the major theme of the book of James is the behavior of biblical faith. It is faith in tennis shoes, or as we might say out in the West, faith in cowboy boots. It's how faith behaves. I think all of us might agree there's a good deal of confusion in Western culture, probably all over the world, when you bring up a subject like faith. I mean, somebody, a politician or some sort of motivational speaker or anybody else might say, I'm a person of faith. Now, what does that mean? It depends on what they think faith is, and it it depends on where their faith is placed. Those are the two issues with faith. Number one, faith is only as good as its object. There are people that put faith in Jim Jones. It did not help them. There are people that put their trust in the Beatles or Marilyn Manson. That doesn't help them either. So faith is only as good as its object. And then when it comes to the exercise of that faith, of course, uh, Christian people, real Christians, are going to get their marching orders from the written word of God. They're going to try to conform their life uh, to what is penned here because this is the authority. I'm not the authority. This building is not the authority. Some denomination or hier- hierarchy or person across the world is not the authority. God is the authority, He's given us His word. Now, what the book of James does is demonstrate to us over and over again the different forums where faith is demonstrated, what it looks like. Kind of like what it does in Hebrews 11, the so-called faith chapter. It gives a description there at the beginning of what faith is, but then the rest of the chapter is how faith looked in the lives of everyday people in the various circumstances that they were placed in. A faith... That does nothing to change your life. A faith that does not govern your thoughts and speech and habits and relationships is not genuine faith, according to the Scriptures. Now, I mentioned at the beginning of this series that both of the letters written, you remember, The Lord Jesus Christ had no earthly father. Joseph was his stepfather, as we would call him. He was conceived by the Holy Ghost. But there were other siblings in the family who were the product of Mary and Joseph's natural marriage. The Lord had half brothers and half sisters living on the earth. The Gospels tell us uh, some about them. But two of those... Half brothers were used to pen books in the New Testament. Their names were James in this epistle and Jude. And both of them wrote very short, uh, very powerful letters. Now, both of their letters have the, uh, have the characteristic of, of no lengthy introduction, just getting right down to business. Now, part of that might be just personality. God used men by design to write the Scriptures. He used forty, roughly 40 different human authors, one of them Gentile, the rest Jewish, and uh, men of different backgrounds, and men spanning roughly 15 centuries by their different lives. So, did God override personality in the penning of the Scriptures? No, He absolutely did not. We don't believe that He mechanically dictated it and turned man into robots. Nor did God go looking for the right personality. He created men in advance. Providentially, sovereignly, He created them to pen His Word and to give exactly the message He wanted. He gave them the backgrounds and the upbringings and the the personality traits and, and different giftedness to pen exactly what He wanted in His Word. But part of the reason I think these two men are so direct is humanly their sense of wasted years. I mean, think when the Lord Jesus began at roughly the age of 30, He began His public ministry. Most people who heard Him and were introduced to Him, heard Him after that point, for that roughly three or three and a half year public ministry. But take somebody who grew up in the same house as a half-sibling, who had, by the time he was raised from the dead, had roughly somewhere in the neighborhood of 25 to 30 years of acquaintance with him. They never saw him sin. Never a wrong tone of voice. Never a hint of rebellion. Never a glimmer of temper tantrum. Never an ounce of carnality. In fact, by the time he started his public ministry, they thought he had mental problems. So I think by the time they came to their senses and realized and repented and realized he was the Savior of all mankind, maybe they felt themselves, they had been so close to committing blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. (laughs) They'd seen so much And they'd rejected so much light. So I think part of it was their sense of urgency because they'd spent so many years with so much before them and utterly rejected it. So Jude had this uh, huge passion and burden for earnestly contending for the faith and combating apostasy, the falling away. And James had this tremendous burden for making sure that we understand what true faith behaves like. Just to quickly remind us where we've been, some of these uh, sections. Faith recognizes the purpose of trials and endures them. Faith recognizes the source of temptation and rejects them. Faith obeys. Faith conforms itself to the written word of God. Faith removes wrongful discrimination. Faith proves itself by its works. Faith controls the tongue. And faith produces true wisdom, which is where we ended last time at the end of chapter 3. Now, viewing that list can remind us of a very sobering reality. That it's possible to name the name of Christ to be a true believer. And yet miss the purpose for trials. Be ignorant of how to combat temptation, to know the Bible but not actually do anything about it, to hold on to carnal prejudice and sectarianism, to have a total disconnect between creed, what you believe on paper, and conduct, how you live your day to day life, to have no control over the tongue, and to demonstrate a type of wisdom that's nothing more than a useless counterfeit. It's possible. Now that brings us to this morning's topic. Faith produces genuine humility. Now don't miss the connection with the end of the previous chapter. You remember he's talking about true wisdom, particularly verse 17. If you cast your eyes back just a couple verses. He says there's a wisdom in in quotation marks. It would come across to us. A fake kind of wisdom that is earthly, sensual, and demonic or devilish. He says it's the product of the world system and your own fallen nature and the influence of Satan himself. What a statement. But then he says here's what true wisdom looks like. It's first pure. It's first concerned about God's holiness and about purity of life. He says it's peaceable. That's not so hard to understand. It has a peaceful disposition. It's gentle, reasonable, and well-balanced is what that means. It's easy to be entreated. You can reason with it. True wisdom doesn't fly off the handle when honest questions are asked. Do you know there are charlatans in this country that bear the name Baptist that are the exact opposite of this description? There are men that if you come to them and ask an honest question, they will blow your head off. That's carnality. That's not biblical wisdom. I don't care what label they have. Biblical wisdom is easy to be reasoned with. You can have a conversation with it. It's full of mercy and good fruits. It demonstrates the fruit of the Spirit listed in Galatians It's without partiality. It doesn't show respect of persons. It doesn't pat somebody on the back because of what they can give it. It assesses everything by the Scriptures, and it's without hypocrisy. It doesn't have a Sunday mask and a Friday night mask. It doesn't have a circle of people that know their Christian face And then a circle of people that know some dark side about them. In other words, biblical wisdom is one person before God, the same person, a genuine person. Now, right on the heels of that, we get into chapter 4, and look how it starts. He's talking about wisdom, showing patience and gentleness, and you can reason with it. And then he asks, from whence or from where come wars and fightings among you? Now, I don't know if James was privy to certain situations. Remember, at the beginning of the book, he's writing to these scattered first century Jewish Christians. They'd been scattered all over because of persecution, because of their faith in Christ. And so they're all over the place. So I don't know if James was privy to certain situations that made him say this. Or if he just knew by experience that wherever sinners are gathered together, this is at least a possibility. Maybe it's just spoken preemptively, like some of the other things. I don't know. But remember, he's speaking to Christian people gathered in local assemblies or among Christian friends or even families. Uh, You mean to tell me that people who were scattered all over the place because of persecution still struggled? With this, yes, that's what I mean. Later on in the book of James, he speaks of the prophet being a man of like passions as we are. You know, it's interesting. Those first century Christians, I think, were apt to look at the Old Testament prophets and think they were almost superhuman. By the way. Us 21st century Christians are apt to look back at the 1st century Christians sometimes and think they were almost superhuman. But then we can read books like 1st and 2nd Corinthians or Revelation 2 and 3 and see that they were very much men of the same passions we are. Same sinful nature, same struggles, same basic issues they fought with some circumstances changed. Now notice how the problem's described. He says, Whence come wars and fightings? Without getting into great de- detail on those two words, I'll say both of them are military combat terms. He's, he's speaking figure, figuratively of warfare. There's a provocation, maybe there's a retaliation and a declaration of war. There's two sides or more that get their armor on and trench in and start. Firing artillery. Now, I want to be careful to say he is not talking about contending for the faith. There is a type of warfare that's, that's not just commended, it's commanded. Verses like that illustrate that principle. He's not talking about a righteous and righteous stance against true doctrinal problems and, and divisions which, by the way, even in those attitudes paramount. Resorting to personal attacks. Well, he only believes that because he's stupid. What value is that in a conversation? He's, He's talking about, though, petty and interpersonal squabbles, within gatherings of the Lord's people and not being able to get along with people properly for very long. It's really the opposite of that wisdom that's from above. And so he asked the question, what, what's at the root of this? Where does this come from? Stop and think about this for a minute. He says, come they not, hence, don't they come from, now what would you expect? Well, we... We like to sugarcoat things in the postmodern era. Otherwise known as making excuse for evil behavior. Notice James doesn't say, well, these things come from your upbringing and habits. You know, these things come because it's just the way you are and people just need to accept you the way you are. He doesn't say these things come from your Scottish blood or forgive me, some of my kids, because you have red hair. Red hair is wonderful, but it's not an excuse for saying amen. He says it's not because you're tired and you missed your morning cup of coffee. It's not because of uh, hormonal imbalances or vitamin deficiencies or other sort of medical things. Now, don't get me wrong. I understand those play a part. I mean, you want to turn me into a blithering idiot, deprive me of a a night of sleep. One, two nights to really do it. I'll tell you two plus two is 65 after that. I know those things play a part, but those are not the root issue. He says, Come, they, these wars and fightings, don't they come from your lusts that war in your members? In other words, these desires resident in your own sin nature. The carnal, twisted desires that are resident by our relation to Adam. You know, it reminds me of Proverbs 13.10. Some of you may remember. He says, only by pride cometh contention. Do you know what most arguments are? It's two proud egos colliding and beating on each other until one of them admits the other one is superior. That's what most arguments are. That word lust there in that first verse is it's often translated pleasures. It's, it's speaking of the gratification of either natural or sinful desires. It can be used either way, but it's, it's usually used in a negative connotation, like it is here. Interestingly enough, it's actually the Greek word hedone. Why does that matter? If you're familiar with the term hedonism, uh, that word's important. What is hedonism? Well, hedonism is the belief that I basically exist, the purpose of my life is to find pleasure. I exist to make myself happy. By the way, as a side note, there's a whole branch of so-called Christian theology, and I don't mean to be unkind, but men like John Piper are very much involved in it. It's called Christian hedonism. The idea is the purpose of my life is to be happy in God. It's a subtle problem with that teaching. It's a whole nother side issue, but he's very, very wrong on that. But classic hedonism is the idea that I live for myself to satisfy my cravings. And Paul's saying, listen, part of the reason these fightings and wars are coming up is because you're hedonistic. You have a self-centered worldview and you think you deserve to have all your cravings met. Now, not just things that seem terribly evil. I mean, how about a craving for recognition or respect or prestige or happiness? Is it wrong to be happy? No, it's not. But if that's the chief aim of your life, to make you happy, you're heading for trouble. That's a byproduct, not the prime product. Do you know it's possible to confess sin and even do Bible studies for mainly self-centered reasons? I think it's possible to confess sin as some sort of manipulation, but it doesn't work with God. Now, here's somebody who says, you know, I really got to stop doing that because, you know, the consequences are tough and people are thinking less of me. What did that person just say? They just said, I'm still consumed with myself. You see, that statement, there's no Godward repentance. There's no grief in that statement about what they've done against the almighty God, which is the real issue with sin. Now, how's that manifested? How's that hedonistic mindset manifested? Well, the beginning of verse two, by a self-centered, angry grasping for their own desires. He says, ye lust. Now that's a different word for lust that emphasizes the desire more than the object. It's an intense coveting after something. He says, you lust. There's things you want and you you burn after. No, you have not. Somehow it's withheld. But you see, now there's a response. What's he saying they do? Ye lust and have not, ye kill. Kill? Now, is James saying that these Jewish Christians just went on a a shooting spree? He's not saying that. There's lots of ways to kill, biblically. What do I mean by that? Well, Think about the seed form of murder. What is it? I mean, think about anger and hatred and jealousy and cruelty and slander. All those are is murder and seed form. And all they need is enough time and nutrients to turn into the other. So James is saying, when you don't get what you want, you resort to murder in seed form. And you take it out on other people. And then he says, you desire to have, that that word there is zeal. It's a burning passion to satisfy a craving. And yet still, he says he cannot obtain. And so they go to battle for it. You fight in war. It's the same words as back in verse 1. Now, think about this in our own life. How often when you get angry about something, is it because there's some desire or craving that you have and you don't think it's being met, so you lash out? It's not righteous indignation. Is self-centered. Verse 2b, another way it's manifested at the end of that verse is a lack of ongoing prayer about the matter. He says, you have not because you ask not. (laughs) He's saying you also don't have certain desires met, even legitimate ones, because you won't ask God for them. Now, let let me sidestep here for a minute. There are things that God wants to give us but he will not give them except in answer to prayer. It's not because he's cruel, it's because he wants us to know him more than anything else. And giving whatever that is apart from prayer would fight against that purpose. But what keeps us from praying about those things? It, Maybe we've subtly adopted the philosophy that God won't do anything about it, so I better take care of it myself. I'll meet my own needs. You know, really, if you think about it, there's only two philosophies there. I know we struggle with this as we war in the Christian life, and sometimes we find these things creeping in and we're shocked, and we confess them as as the sin that they are. But really, there's one of two directions. Either I can trust God to meet my needs, I can actually trust Him, And he may do that any any number of ways, or it's ultimately up to me to meet my own needs. And of course, when we adopt that, we run up against our own finiteness in a hurry. And it makes us upset because we realize we can't do it. Or maybe sometimes we know that what we're seeking is not pleasing to God. We're really at war with Him. I See, that's the burden behind verse 3. You just see these Jewish believers standing up saying, No, no, James, we do pray. And he says, Ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss that ye may consume it upon your lusts. He's telling them, you've adopted the position that the Almighty God is like a genie and a lamp on a shelf, and you just take it down and rub it whenever you decide you might need something. In other words, God is there for your benefit. You were not created to be his servant. Boy, is there a difference between the two. He's saying they're asking purely for carnal reasons. Now, let me ask this. Is it wrong to ask God for things, good things, that I don't necessarily need? Is that wrong? No. Now, you parents that are here. Do you delight to give good things to your children, even things they don't need? Sure you do. Sure you do. Uh, Most of us have a meal budget that reflects a lot of wants. Really, we could survive on beans and rice. God is a Father in heaven. He delights to give good gifts to His children. It's not wrong to ask God for those things. I'm not saying that at all. I could think of so many times in our life, and so can some of you, most of you, where God has tenderly given you good things that you didn't need, but you knew it was the hand of a loving Father. I think at one, I've probably shared this before, but it's very precious memory to us. We were going through a very, very discouraging and difficult time. Is back when we were still up in Alaska. I don't even remember what all was going on. I just know it was very dark. And uh, my wife had read the passage where the Lord said to consider the lilies of the field. Oh, they toil not, neither do they spin. And yet Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of those. And she shared with me that morning what a, what a precious gift that passage was to her that day. Well, later on that same day, in the midst of our, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say despondency, uh, we went on a drive and uh, went up in the mountains and just walked off this random trail about 30 feet, 40 feet from the road. And there's the most beautiful bunch of lilies right there. But see, here's the weird thing. They don't grow there. So she bent down to grab them and it was a bouquet. How do you explain that? I don't know. I can tell you they went home and went in the vase. Now, did God need to do that? No, He didn't need to do that. So I'm not saying He's not a tender father and He doesn't want to give good things. But the difference is attitude. In other words, my needs must be subservient to His desires and His will, which means I'm content because I trust Him and I'm peaceable with others when He delays or says no. That's the difference. It's one of the tragedies of the so-called health, wealth, prosperity gospel. It's not a gospel, it's heresy. Really, what is name it and claim it and speak things into existence by your own creative power? I'm just going to believe God for that million dollars and that new yacht. All that is is an encouragement to pray, ask amiss that you may consume it upon your lust. That's all that is. In other words, prayer can become a list of things God needs to do to make me satisfied or else. Or else I'll stop praying or I'll look for a new teacher to tell me different things that I like to hear. I'll go to war with others, etc. Now how else is this carnal, warring spirit that isn't getting what it's wanted, how else is it manifested? Look at verse 4. Ye adulterers and adulteresses... Another way it's manifested is by divided affections. Now, is that not shockingly strong language? He's writing to Christian people. I mean, imagine if, let's say you take a close friend who's known you a while. You know, one of those friends that you, you value their word tremendously. It's like you've given them a really big, sharp sword. And they can cut you like few people can, because your level and trust and respect for them. And you go to them and you pour out the struggle you're having, these interpersonal conflicts or other things going on, and they listen for a while. And uh, you ask them, what, "What do you, what do you think? What's going on? What do you think my issue is?" And they say, "Well." Your root problem is that you're an adulterer. Say what? Where where'd that come from? I dare say we might be tempted to get a little upset at that one. But remember, James, his language, beloved brethren, he he does this for their own spiritual good. And that's exactly what he says here. Now, let me explain a little. When it comes to the physical act of adultery, statistically and historically, uh, men have been more likely to do so. Now, can you really trust cheater uh, statistics? Like, I don't know. But I'm saying it's it's typically been more of a man issue. And I'm certainly not justifying it. But here's why I'm saying that. I find it astounding here. James has been using masculine terminology the entire book, he uses the term brethren frequently. He's not just talking to men. He's talking to the ladies also. But he just uses a general term brethren to cover everybody. But here, instead of using just one general term, he uses the masculine and the feminine. Adulterers and is. It's like he says it so everybody doesn't miss that he's saying this is a danger for them. By now, you may have figured out he's not talking about actual physical adultery. I mean, those, those are ugly words, aren't they? Even in, our, even in our postmodern sensual Corinthian culture, people still try to avoid bearing that label. They really do. They might say, well, he had a mistress, or she had an affair, or they ended up finding the one they really, truly loved. I've never met anybody who proudly says, I am an adulterer. That's taking biblical terminology and nailing yourself to the wall with it. Because there's something in that term that removes excuses and lays the blame where it belongs. I find it interesting, even in our culture, there's no scarlet letters being stuck to people anymore. But the stigma still sticks to a point. Now, why would James use those words to address struggling Christian people in the first century, many of whom were facing hardship for the sake of Christ? Why would he call them that? What is adultery, really? It's, It's neglecting to cultivate the good and proper and necessary passion and cultivating a forbidden passion instead. One spouse walks into another and says, I don't love you anymore. What are they really saying? They're saying, I have chosen, choice by choice, thought by thought, to cultivate a different passion that I've now let replace you. Could be another person. It could be a career. It could be independence. It could be a hobby. You name it. So, James is telling these brethren and sistren... But men and women both, he's saying the main reason you're warring against each other is because you've cultivated a passion for the world that has amounted to spiritual unfaithfulness to your heavenly husband. In other words, a Christian person doesn't just up and lose passion for God. Losing passion for God is not a condition that's been thrust upon you. A Christian person loses passion for God as choice by choice, and hour by hour, and thought by thought, and meditation by meditation, and dollar by dollar, and activity by activity. They've transferred that passion which belongs to God to some other illegitimate source. And any other source is illegitimate. Maybe they want to sugarcoat it too. They, well, it's just a season of apathy. That's just a little bit of backsliding. God calls it adultery. A spiritual scarlet letter. Now, what have they transferred their passion to? He tells them they've become friends of the world. He calls them adulterers and adulteresses. And then he says, Know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? That word friendship... We know the word, but let me say something about it. It speaks of a a mutual respect and affection, a two-way relationship of, of giving and receiving. Now, what exactly were these scattered Jewish Christians doing? We're not told. Maybe some of them were involved in some scandalous activity like some were in Corinth. But James isn't necessarily saying, And you guys binge watch R-rated films on Netflix and you waste your paycheck in the slot machine and whatever's left you throw in down at a happy hour at the saloon. He's not necessarily saying that. Those things are worldly, but those things are not the world. Let me explain what I mean by that. In fact, keep your finger in James. This is a passage most of us know, and we did talk about this in Sunday school recently, but let's just lightly cover it again. First uh, John, flip ahead a little bit. First John chapter 2. All right, when we think of the world or the cosmos, what exactly is that? 1 John beginning in verse 2. Or chapter 2, verse 15. He says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. So, love not the world. Obviously, this is a danger. And he's writing to Christian people. But notice he makes a differentiation between the world and the things that are in or are produced by the world. Now, notice how the world's described here in a minute. It's not so much in terms of physical things and places and people. The world is described here in terms of subtle, godless philosophies. By the way, have you ever noticed the prominence of threefold completion all throughout the Scriptures? I am going somewhere with this. (laughs) And the universe in general. How do you define space? Height, width, and depth. What about matter, liquid, solid or gas? What about time, it's past, present or future? What about man, he's body, soul and spirit? What about the Holy Trinity, one God manifested in three persons, Father, Son and Holy Spirit? Jesus said, "I'm the way, the truth and the life." There's even a satanic trinity in Revelation 13. You have the dragon, the beast and the false prophets. We have three great enemies in the Christian life, don't we? The world, the flesh and the devil. So you have this invisible, seductive, powerful creature using means of a visible, seductive world to appeal to the flesh, this traitor within. We have a threefold enemy. And by the way, that enemy, that threefold enemy is casting another triplet at us, a threefold treble hook of worldly philosophy. Look how it's described. What is the world? All that's in the world, verse 16, uh, number one is the lust of the flesh. Now, please don't miss this because sometimes I think world is misdefined to people's demise. Many times people don't recognize the world is a lot bigger concept than just the bar. The lust of the flesh, what's that? Here's what it is. It's the encouragement to satisfy bodily cravings in a manner that is outside the will of God. Lust of the eyes. It's the accumulation of things outside the will of God. What about the pride of life? (laughs) That's the desire for recognition, fame, position, etc. Outside the will of God. Now we see this starkly displayed. Do you remember the temptation thrown at Christ? Let me ask you a question. Do you think that trying to get him to make bread out of a rock, does that sound evil to you? That's terrible, isn't it? You go, No? What, what? What's so bad about that? By the way, Satan threw this treble hook at Jesus. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and pride of life. You see it there. Let me ask you a question. What would be wrong in and of itself with the Son of God, who had all power, making a loaf of bread out of a rock? What would be wrong for the Son of God, who created the angels, to jump off the temple and have them catch him? What would be wrong with the Son of God taking possession of all the kingdoms of the earth that rightfully belong to him? What's wrong with that? Well, here's what it is they were outside the will of God in his earthly life. That's why. You see, the world isn't just some objects. It's godless philosophy that gets you to meet your needs in a way that God does not desire or approve. Boy, is that widespread. And we're so bombarded by this, we hardly recognize it. You can turn back to James if you want. The world also comes with sugar-coated titles. I'm not saying every ounce of entertainment is wrong. Don't misunderstand me, but... The description I just read, couldn't it be sugar-coated by saying, oh, it's only entertainment? Or, well, it's only recreation. Is recreation wrong? No, but can recreation be the world? Absolutely it can be. Somebody may cover the world by calling it a more promising career path. You know what else is the world? The seeker-sensitive church movement. That's right, I said that. This carnal, fake Christ, shallow, unbiblical movement that's captivated our country. It's the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life with religious terminology. Come to Jesus, have everything you want, stay your own master, and keep doing exactly what you want, and nobody will say a thing. That's not biblical Christianity, that is the world. We may call it advertising, right? What's the what's the hallmarks of most ad most advertising? Not all. What is it? Hey, doesn't she look good with no clothes on? Just look at the way she rides that surfboard. But why do advertisements show that sort of thing all the time? Lust of the flesh is effective. Hey, look at this product. You. You can't live without it. Just look how happy the people are that have it. You need this product for a limited time only while supplies last. What is that? Lust of the eyes. Hey, think how good you'll look. Won't your loins look nice in those new Dockers? That everybody will look at you. You'll just be, they'll think you're the smartest and the nicest looking guy in the world. What's that? The pride of life. That's that's behind most advertising. It's everywhere, this this philosophy. So what am I saying? The world can be in something called a church or at the saloon or anywhere else. It's where those things, those philosophies, threefold, are manifested without being challenged. And here's what he says. He tells them they're a friend of the world. Now, what does it mean to be a friend of the world? (laughs) It's allowing those philosophies to subtly transfer our passions from God to something else. And when that happens, life starts to unravel. Just as soon take the sun out of our solar system and try to keep it all spinning right as you would take God out of the center of your life and expect to have a balanced existence. He is everything. James says, know ye not, shouldn't you know this? Friendship of the world is enmity with God. He says it's not normal, it's not excusable, it's not practical. It is active hostility against the God that came to this earth, was slaughtered on a cross, rose again, bought you with his own blood, and the world system, that threefold treble hook, if you're constantly swallowing it and allowing it to dominate your life unchallenged, call it whatever you want, you're living in hostility to the God of heaven. They're functioning as his enemy. Because the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and pride of life are a declaration of war on his character, person, and kingdom. Now, verse 5, I'm just going to touch it for a second here. It's actually one of the most difficult verses in the New Testament. I'll briefly explain why. Do you think that the, the Scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? Now, first... James seems to be quoting from a particular passage, but his quotation cannot be found anywhere in the Old Testament. That's, that's part of the difficulty. Uh, secondly, the difficulty is who's the Spirit referring to? Is it capital S, meaning, is he talking about the fact that the Holy Spirit is jealous over us? That's true. That the Holy Spirit's jealous over us and wants to protect us? Is that what that verse is saying? Or a spirit lowercase, like the translators put it, is it talking about this spirit or an attitude of jealousy within us which is not so noble of a desire? Now you've heard me say multiple times, any passage like this has one valid interpretation. But here's one I'll candidly tell you. I'm not positive what that is, but I'll tell you what I think it is. Some have said it doesn't belong in the Scriptures at all. It was added by accident. I reject that because I believe in the doctrine of preservation. And this has been a faithful translation for 400 years plus. But in the context, the spirit of jealousy fits much better. It's a continuation of the warning of warring and fighting and being a friend of the world. And then the but doesn't come until verse 6 when we see God's remedy, which we'll get to later. So he seems to be saying that within all of us, interwoven in our DNA is this hideous spirit of jealousy and ill will towards others that has to be dealt with. So he's speaking of the depth of our own sin natures that we wore, even as Christians. Now we have two natures. What about the scriptures? What is he talking about? Well, he seems to not be quoting from one singular verse. Uh, There's something similar in Matthew 2, verse 23. It says of Christ... That, this, that it was fulfilled, which was written by the prophets, plural, he shall be called a Nazarene. Now you'll not see that phrase anywhere in the Old Testament. Nazarene, was a, a that was a statement of scorn. And the prophets there were summarizing that he would be despised and rejected of men and ill-treated. So he's just saying the bulk of the Old Testament taught he would not be received well. Men would reject him. And I think he's summarizing here. Doing the same thing, the entirety of the Old Testament, it's a truth consistently taught that man has this lustful, envious, antagonistic nature within himself. I mean, you think think of Cain and Abel and what happened, or Joseph and his brothers, or Daniel in the lion's den and how that came about, or Daniel's three friends in the furnace, or the way the prophets were treated, or the way even good kings reacted. Men like Uzziah and Asa, good men, men who did a lot of good, men who knew God. Both of them became infuriated later in life when they had their own sin confronted by men of God. In fact, Uzziah was turned into a leper for that very reason until the day of his death. I mean, think of the way the Jews treated Moses and Aaron, or the way the religious elite treated Christ on the earth. So James is saying, the Word of God consistently teaches with good reason that there is in each of us a tendency to be jealous or to react carnally to others, especially when that person's godliness is a reflection on our own corruption and spiritual adultery. In other words, shoot the messenger. They're the problem. We'll have to stop with verse 6. We'll just touch on and continue next week. But he giveth more grace, wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. The situation's not hopeless, thank God. Remember, God never paints black pictures unless he's heading for a hopeful ending. He only tells us how bad things are so he can open up a doorway of a path of light and say, now go this way, because the way you're heading is heading for disaster. That's what James is doing here. It would be hopeless if it were up to us to fight our way out of this. We cannot. But he says, he giveth more grace. God's grace is given when and where it's needed. True, the storehouse of grace is open to every believer. But did you know God's grace is dispensed when and where it's needed? You ever read about a martyr who was burned alive, and they went out of this world in total fearlessness, singing hymns? And you think I could never do that? You're right, because you won't be given the grace to do it unless you need to. Or you see somebody else bearing a particularly heavy burden, and, and, and they're flourishing, and you're thinking, "I I couldn't do that." You're right. Because the grace to do it won't be given you unless you need it. Grace isn't given to us to show off like some trophy chest. It's given when it's needed. And James is saying, I got good news. You realize the depth of this iniquity within? Oh, God's grace is sufficient, and it's far deeper than the depth of your sin. But here's the deal. We're not talking about salvation here. We're talking about growth as a Christian. The grace only comes through a right relation to God and fellowship with Him, an attitude of submission, trust, and dependence, and no other way. I mean, we, we can keep duking it out with circumstances and people, just like I think of Jacob wrestling the angel. Remember that? <laughs> Jacob was so tough, he had life all figured out. But it's not until our thigh, our own strength, is knocked out of joint in our own eyes that the needed help comes. He's actually quoting Proverbs 3.34 at the end of this verse, which says, Surely he scorneth the scorners, but he giveth grace unto the lowly. So here's a person their sins confronted, and uh, not in sugar-coated terms, uh, but root causes in biblical terminology. And they get mad. They, they shoot the messenger. Maybe they have a big emotional meltdown to gain sympathy and protect their ego. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying emotions are bad. But I'm saying this manipulative heart of ours sometimes knows how to put on a big tear show so that it doesn't have to deal with sin. To gain sympathy for our evil behavior instead of dealing with it. Maybe they accused the messenger of misinterpreting a Bible passage or being unloving or not understanding their situation, etc. By the way, these people could have done the same thing to James. Where does he get off on his high horse? I can't believe he just called me an adulterer. Who in the world does he think he is? He doesn't know my situation. He doesn't know exactly what I'm... No, no, he probably didn't. But he was right. See, all kinds of excuses and blame shifting and everything may come out, but what's going to happen is that person can keep right on bloodying their knuckles, but help from God's not going to be given. They're still trusting in self. All of those things are manifestations of pride masquerading as something noble. James says here, make no mistake, God resisteth the proud. We talked about it a little bit in Sunday school. What does that mean? It doesn't mean God's vindictive, or if you're His child, He stops loving you, or He wants to all of a sudden throw you into hell. That's not what that means at all. This is a father-son relationship if you're in Christ. But the heart of God is grieved because somebody who's overtaken with pride is going a different direction. I mean, we walk in fellowship with God. That means He's God. He's right. And I'm not. I never have a better idea than Him. Never. Never, never, never. So, his holy character can't walk in fellowship with those who are going a different direction because he'd have to act unlike himself and he will not do that. But amazingly enough, in shoving away God, we're only pushing ourselves away. I think of the illustration here's a guy standing on ice and here's a tree sticking through. He's going to go push that tree out of the way. Well, the tree's not moving. The harder he pushes, the further he moves. Does it make sense for a creature to fight his maker? That's the dumbest thing imaginable. But our our sin nature will convince us it's a good idea and it's going to work good this time. It'll all be okay if we do it. No, it won't be okay. But he giveth grace to the humble. Those that accept his assessment of their condition and repent... All the grace necessary to press on and get up and go forward and change is there. Let me close with a few questions. Are you honestly a person who finds yourself in constant conflict with the people around you on an ongoing basis? And yet, somehow you've convinced yourself it's usually somebody else's fault. Can I invite you to consider that it might not be always somebody else's fault? That maybe because of your anger or whatever it is towards God, you feel like your needs aren't being met and you lash out when the people that you think should meet them don't meet them. You know something? People will let us down, pastors will let you down. One of my dearest friends in Alaska who's been in ministry a very long time, he'd always say, don't put me on a pedestal ever because it really hurts when I fall off of it. Now, he wasn't talking about heinous scandal. I'm not talking about that. But he meant, when, don't, don't treat me like I'm immune to the things I'm preaching about. I have the same nature. Can you honestly say that you are in Christ this morning? You know, true salvation isn't something you're working through. Do you know that this book claims to be the Word of God, God breathed? And this book tells of man's hideously sinful condition, but it also tells of a remedy, a Savior that came. And this book tells you, in no uncertain terms, you can know your sins are forgiven. You can know that you have eternal life. You can have assurance and security today just as surely as I'm standing here and know that you're right with God based on what He has said. Not what a church said or not what a man said, but what God has said. Now, do you have that? If I were to ask you, I'm not going to point everyone out, but if I were to ask you, do you know your sins are forgiven today? Do you know that? You can know that. You absolutely can. But here's the thing. You have got to come God's way. I cannot save you. This church cannot save you. Putting money in that box does nothing to save you. Cleaning up your own life cannot save you. The Lord said "Ye must be born again. You need a change in your moral and spiritual nature. That's a supernatural birth that only God can do. But he has promised this. Whosoever will may come. In fact, the Bible closes that way. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit and the bride, that's the churches saying, come, 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 come drink of the fountain of the water of life. The Lord says, come everyone that thirsteth. He'll take your sin away. He'll give you new life. He'll keep his word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. You've given us a sure word. And I pray, Lord, that that we would take this and make application where it needs to be made. Lord, thank you for helping us in our walk with you. Thank you for giving us truth. Lord, we live in a world that's so bombarded with with lies, with spin, with bias. And even men can stand up and teach this book and fail, but your word never, ever fails. Father, thank you. You can be trusted. Man can't, but you can. Lord, I pray for everybody here, those those that know you, those that have truly been saved, I pray that I pray they'd flourish in their fellowship with you. To find all the grace needed to press on and to bear much fruit and to finish well, no matter when that is. I pray for those that may be sitting here and really frankly have to admit, They don't know their eternal state. They don't know what's going to happen when they stand before you. They don't know how much of their sins are going to come back to condemn them in judgment. I pray if there's some here like that, they would find the water of life, that they would go to your word, that they'd be helped to see Christ for who he really is and to find the life that that you want to give. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's stand. We'll sing one more song this morning. We'll just sing one verse and then we'll be dismissed. Um, Again, I'll remind us before we sing, if you want to take part in the special offering for the missions, uh, don't forget uh, to do that, the box or Dan or or whatever. Just get that somehow. Let's stand together and let's sing song number 541. Song number 541. Only trust Him. Come every soul by sin oppressed There's mercy with the Lord And He will surely give you rest